Hello, everybody. Uh, this week, Alan asked me to do the angry German introduction, so I'll do that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on our panel, we have Eric Bolikowski. Hey, hey. Good to be back on holiday. Alan Weimar. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> yeah. And my name is Sascha Wolf, or Sascha Wolf, how we say it in Germany. And this week, our guest is AJ Foster. AJ, why don't you tell us why you're on the show and why everybody likes you? Hello there. I don't know that everyone likes me, but I'm on the show today because I am a software developer at Pluralsight. And I recently authored a Pluralsight course called Elixir The Big Picture, trying to bridge the gap between folks who are evaluating Elixir and why they might want to choose it for their next business venture. That sounds nice. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. How did that actually come to be? I mean, you work at Pluralsight, right? So how did, how did you end up making a course for, for Elixir? Yeah, you may or may not know that most authors at Pluralsight are external folks. They are not employees. But there are a few employees who are interested in teaching and education, and they end up authoring content on the platform as well. Over time, as I got more into Elixir, I wanted to see Elixir content on the platform. So I gradually worked my way in and tried to convince them that that would be a good idea. I was actually trying to do the same thing. We, we were talking before the show and we know some people at Pluralsight and I was having a discussion with uh, one of the guys and I said, I think you guys should put it on there. And I don't know, there was a big reaction of like, no, 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 or that's not mainstream enough or, or never heard of it. Or, I forgot what the reaction was. This was a few years ago, actually. So I'm glad that it's finally on there. Yeah, it's definitely been a journey to get that type of content on the platform whether it's Elixir or in the future, Erlang still working on that. Because Pluralsight's customers are very different from what you might get if you're just creating content freely on the web. These are corporate clients. They have very different needs, very different interests, and they're trying to upskill people in very specific technologies. Actually, I'm kind of curious. Why did... And maybe this is my own kind of curiosity. Is why did Pluralsight switch away from like B2C? It was like B2C and it was like, B2C plus B2B, and then now it seems like they went totally over to B2B. I was kind of curious, like, what happened? I mean, obviously, that, that changes a lot of things, right? Hence, it probably put more blockers into your path of getting that going. Sure. I wasn't there for most of the decisions around that big transition to B2B customers, business-to-business customers. It was sort of happening as I joined the company. So I'm not really sure the reasoning behind it, but I can tell that it has done great things for the company. So I can't fault them for making that choice. And are you using Elixir also at Pluralsight? So is, is it something like you're actually well, basically eating your own dog food, right? <laughs> Happily, we are. So we have one team at the company right now that is using Elixir. The team that I'm on, we focus on creating the authoring tools and the learning experience for our hands-on cloud labs, 
So more of an interactive content type. You can imagine with Elixir, it's more focused on interactive things. And so we do have a, a small group of people who are using Elixir at Pluralsight today. I think we were, I'm more interested to hear about like what was the, how do you start from coming in, convincing people that this could be something useful, making the content. And like you said, this B2B now, right? Enterprise customers and saying that we should put this into the, the stack. That, that, can you actually talk about that? And I mean, feel free to be as, as detailed as you want, because I'm sure some listeners out there are in a corporate environment and they do have these kind of struggles. And I'm also curious about how long was the process? Was it two years? Was it six months? I mean, I can imagine it being less than a year. Yeah, so there are some nice parallels between the way that we introduced Elixir at Pluralsight for us to work with and how we got Elixir content on the platform as well. And I think this story is played out quite a few times across different companies. You have maybe a group of people who are working on some sort of prototype or they're moving a little bit faster, working on something slightly different than the rest of the organization. That's a great candidate group of people to introduce Elixir to. And that's really the value that I sold in this course to folks listening and to Pluralsight as well for putting this content on the platform was Elixir is a great language for getting something off the ground quickly. It removes so many barriers for things that aren't the business value, that aren't the stuff that you should be spending time on. So you can get up off the ground and get something out to customers and you know see the value, see if it's going to work quickly before you invest the kind of investment that you might put in with another language. I guess maybe I'll ask another question. <laughs> so when you, like, what do you think was actually the easiest part of the process of trying to convince people that, you know, Elixir is definitely something that you guys should use and also that you should teach to other corporate clients? And actually, I mean, do you actually have a path for that too? Because I know you guys have paths, right? And what was like the most easiest part of it? What was actually the most difficult part? And was it expected for each of those? It, it is difficult to get a new path for a new technology on any learning platform, I think, because you have to convince them not only that you're going to spend your time on it, which you can choose to spend your time on whatever you want. That's not really a cost to them. But all of the other folks that are involved, the the production editors, everything like that, the folks who have to spend hours of their day supporting this content and making sure that it gets onto the platform correctly. It's you know not insignificant amount of time that the company has to spend on any new technology if you want to introduce it to a learning platform. Convincing them to do it, it, it took some time. At, and I think that's true for any new technology. But it really centered around this is something that's growing. It has the opportunity to be something that changes the course of a company's direction. It's something that people are actively using and hiring for. It may not be the hiring market that something like JavaScript has, but it's out there. And if you look at the index of technologies, you know, the Tyobi index, Elixir is starting to make more appearances on there. It's starting to show up higher in like Stack Overflow surveys and in those results. All of these things sort of add up to, to show that this is a technology that is growing. People may be interested in it. And we would like to be on the, the front edge of having content for it rather than trying to catch up with it later on. If you had to sell Elixir, comparatively speaking, say compared to JavaScript or other major languages, what would be your key arguments? This was a, something I had to really think about 
sitting down to make this Pluralsight course because this first big picture course was going to be, you know, possibly for a software developer, but also possibly for a leader trying to evaluate whether Elixir is a good choice for your next project. And the normal arguments just don't work. The reasons I love Elixir about the things that have to do with, you know, developer happiness and my productivity, they don't necessarily sell it. And maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but they don't to a lot of leaders in technology organizations. So I had to really think about it, sit down and think, okay, what matters to the business? If you're doing a prototype, you want to get the prototype out quickly. Elixir enables that. If you are making a product that's going to stick around long term, you want that product to be reliable, easily maintainable. Elixir has some really great strengths there as well. And so kind of focusing in on those things and the fact that you are enabling your developers to focus on what matters rather than the minutia of, you know, just getting the app running in the first place. That's what really sells it to to folks and especially to folks like the kind of people who pay for Pluralsight for their corporate employees. It's interesting that you say that because recently we, we had an episode where we talked about Elixir as a general purpose language and why people might want to pick it. And it's not only this niche thing. And that was like a lot of the talking points we ended up with like, okay, it's easy to get started with. It's easy to, to hit the ground running, but it also doesn't have this these foot guns other languages might have where, where you end up in a situation where you have this big ball of mud and it's unmaintainable and, and, and buggy. Like, of course, it can also happen in Elixir, but, but, but my impression is that there are certain design decisions specifically made to avoid some of these issues with like fast growing code bases. So yeah. that's right. And, you know, to kind of put even more emphasis on one particular piece of it, I really wanted to spend some time in the course talking about the difference between trying to avoid errors altogether and recovering from them when they eventually happen. Because the bottom line is, if you have Elixir hosted on, no matter where it's hosted, something's going to go down sometime. There's nothing you can do in your code to avoid the node going down and your app being offline. And if you have your app as part of this distributed system that's relying on one another, Elixir can handle that a lot better than other languages can. And bottom line is, you're going to have less downtime because of that. And just that focus of not trying to try catch every little thing that could possibly go wrong, and instead dealing with the consequences and restarting processes when they do eventually happen, that's really powerful. Yeah, basically accepting reality of like, things are going to break at one point or another. <laughs> Nothing is perfect. I'm curious, do you also talk in your course about like Elixir and Erlang? Because I mean, a lot of these ideas we just talked about come originally from Erlang. So um, how, how does that stack up in the course? Yes, definitely. So the first module of the course is all about what Elixir inherits from Erlang. Because a lot of folks will look at Elixir, you know, this language that you know, first commits in 2011, first releases in 2012, they think this is a shiny new technology. It's probably just going to be a blip on the radar for a little bit and then disappear like many technologies do. But when you realize those roots in Erlang, and if you really understand what it's coming from, then you start to realize that that's not the full story. This is actually a technology that has really strong foundations that are well tested and proven in production. And that can really flip a switch when you're, you know, an engineering leader that is trying to decide whether this is a good technology to invest in. Did you already have some kind of feedback from especially like technology leaders and like 
more from your B2B side where people said, okay, this course like made us choose Elixir. So any success stories, basically? I wish. Nothing yet. I haven't received much feedback on the course overall yet, but hopefully someday that story will play out, you know, whether because of this course or because of any of the other great content out there. I would love to hear that story of, you know, we were skeptical at first, but because of the great community and the content that was available all over the internet, we made a decision and we don't regret it. So you've heard it here, folks, like recommend this course to your manager and maybe <laughs> things are going to pan out. I can dream. Well, if things actually do pan out, do you have anything next planned? Yeah, so I would love to see more content about Elixir and Erlang, honestly, on the Pluralsight platform, because it is in some situations, it provides a sort of legitimacy to the type of types of companies that buy Pluralsight and use it to skill up their employees. If they don't see a language represented or represented well, then they're going to consider it to be a niche language, just bottom line. So I would love to see more Elixir content. Uh, sometime this week, there will be a new course on Elixir called Architecting Elixir Applications with OTP. That's sort of like that next level up. We have some great getting started content as well, introducing you to the syntax and everything like that. I would love to see more. And hopefully we can also get some content on Erlang as well, because I know plenty of companies already have Erlang in production and they may struggle to get folks trained in it and up and ready to add new features to it in the long run. Yeah, it's true. I do remember like some interesting companies. I think there was some insurance company or something that put things into Erlang and yeah, they, they did it like on Super Bowl day for... Have you heard the story? You're laughing. So I'm curious, maybe you heard about it. I forgot what the company was, but it was really crazy. And probably the reason that they did do this was because they knew it could handle the traffic. And I think at the launch day was like Super Bowl day, you know, because when you do your, your Super Bowl commercial, that's when you get your traffic, right? And so I have to see if I can find the the, the, the story, but it was pretty good. Like they, It was like Java shop and then they knew it couldn't scale for this kind of stuff. So they did Erlang and it just worked out like too well. That is a fantastic story and exactly the kind of story I want to tell more of too. Because if this is a technology that you can turn to and trust for those days, that's a great choice for any day. So was there anything you like learned about Elixir or Erlang you didn't know before while making the course? So any cool little discoveries which might or might not have made it into the course? It was great to really think about, again, why, why I like the language and really consider that that's not the reasons that folks choose a language for a business. You know, it's not about a friendly syntax. It's not about how nice the mix tool is, really. Those are great things, and that I would never discount them. But the real decision for an engineering leader is something much deeper than that. And speaking to that is difficult for any technology. I think we, as an industry, have fallen into certain ruts where... We see other companies that are using a technology. So we just assume that it's a good choice for our business. And now that I've evaluated that mindset and, and really thought through, you know, what if I were a leader making the same choice, looking at those same things, it brought me, honestly, a lot of respect for why companies use the languages they do. Because it's tough to make that decision. It really is. It's tough to go out and, and put your, you know, your reputation as a leader, as a company on the line and say, we're going to back this language. That's a tough decision to make. As well, just looking at Elixir overall and digging more into the history of Erlang, it was really fun to see 
the situations that Erlang originally were developed in. I had the 10,000 foot view of this is why we created the language and these were the problems it was there to tackle. But actually digging into sort of the early iterations of Erlang and the runtime system and it, you know, the phase in which it went through various different runtimes and was developed from there. That was really interesting. And I highly recommend folks dig into that more because if you understand not just what Erlang is and what it brings to Elixir, but where Erlang itself came from, you can get a really nice view of the, the full evolution of this technology that you're using every day. And that can be really beneficial just to understand not only where it came from, but probably where it's going. Yeah, that's the most interesting part is like telephone switches, basically mirror services, which is what we expect. High availability, handle lots of traffic, spiking, all these kind of things. Like when, when Twitter goes down, everybody flips because they have nowhere to, to complain that some that something's down, right? That this vicious cycle, yeah, or Facebook or whatever. But the funny thing is, of course, let's not say that it's Erlang and, and Elixir are not invulnerable to problems, right? So WhatsApp is probably one of the most famous cases of highly scalable Erlang services. And it does go down because I remember, because like our, everything stops because I'm in Hong Kong and we always use WhatsApp to always chat. And at the other guys over here are in Europe, so I'm sure it's the same thing. That WhatsApp is like really integral to your life. And yeah, it does go down like a couple of times a year. But in reality, like, yeah, it's if you think about other websites and things that you may be used, it's probably a fraction of that. I, I don't know what you guys think. I also enjoy the hot code upgrades that we have that ability because so many times I go to check my bank account and it says, uh, oh, yeah, you know, we're upgrading between now and five hours later. So please check another time. So it's also super annoying. I think one of the big powers of this runtime is it does try to be resilient. As we all know, it has this idea of restarting processes. But I think when folks hear that, if they're coming from another language, they may think, oh, the app restarts itself if there's a problem. And that's not the full picture here. The portion of the application that is restarted, if you've structured your supervision tree correctly, is the smallest portion that needs to be restarted. So if you're having an outage in one area, in one node, in one portion of your service, it may just be that part. And if you can maintain uptime for everything else that's happening in the runtime at the same time, that's really powerful. And it's really difficult to sell that and to get that to be understood to folks who are evaluating the language at times. Because you just hear, oh, it's good at restarting processes. You're thinking, okay, it can restart its own OS process when it crashes. And we call that resilience. Kubernetes can do that too, right? Basically. Exactly, exactly. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software, so it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing 
is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Yeah, um, I think the, the interesting idea there is like, at least my experience is that a lot of engineers and developers who have a few years of experience know that things can fail and are aware of that. And so we consider, okay, now maybe this API request, I have to retry that. Okay, well, but what if a database connection goes missing? And so there are mechanisms in other languages also, like to do to, 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 to patterns rather to, to do this, where you say, okay, let's do a retry-based approach here. I think the the interesting thing about like the beam specifically is that it has this primitives like built in. It is still design of like okay, what does it mean to have something which needs to run, which which can crash, which needs to restart, and from that we have gen servers and supervision trees. And yeah, I guess it makes a lot of sense what you said earlier that it's really digging into where Erlang and Elixir and the beam come from gives you a new appreciation of like, okay, what does it actually mean to have a resilient system in place? And I wonder, like, what, what did you use to learn that? Is there any resources you would recommend? For example, like the, the thesis written by Armstrong, or well, what did you look into to like get this, this level of understanding you just mentioned? Joe Armstrong's thesis was definitely the place I went first because people recommend it, and it is a great read. There was also a later paper, I believe, just detailing more of the history of Erlang in a more general sense. And that was very helpful too, because it just gives you that that view of, you know, we see the finished product and we know a bit where it came from conceptually, but you know, it wasn't always this way. It didn't always look like it does today. And seeing that evolution over time was very helpful. I also want to say, I don't know if you guys knew this, I'm pasting the link into here, but we, you, you mentioned about like, okay, you're just restarting a piece, but there's also this thing. I think heart is the one. I know I've heard of something, but I think heart is the one where it keeps sending a heartbeat to your app. And if your app actually did crash at the top level, it'll actually restart your Erlang release application, which is, so there is a supervisor for it, I believe, which is what this thing is. So if you turn this on, you can have that, uh, that ability. That's interesting. I didn't know this existed. <laughs> I read it somewhere. And, and actually also you... AJ, you also remind me of another story that I talked about on the show a while back. Sometimes restarting your application is a problem. So I don't know if you heard this story, but I know, I think I'm 90% sure I heard it from Francisco where he's had a client and they had this system running for like 20 plus years and they had to restart it because it it was at a point where they, you couldn't hot code upgrade anymore. I think they had to upgrade, upgrade the ERTS or something. It was just like way too far out of date. And what actually happened is that when they went to up, when they went to shut it down and turn it back on, it wouldn't turn back on because there was a speck of dust between the the hardware read head and the disk, and it just couldn't read the disk because it never had to read disk before because everything was in RAM. And so 
restarting the system and rebooting it actually caused a bigger problem. And uh, yeah, the, the CEO was also involved because he was like, oh, what did you guys do? You know, we can't do anything, you know. And if you think about it, uh, this kind of issue would never come to my mind, right? Like whenever something doesn't work, just restart it. In this situation, even though it's an Erlang application, restarting it actually made things much worse because it was well, it's outside the control, but still it's kind of a, a little bit of a, what do you call that, oxymoron or something uh, ironic, right? It's ironic. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We are so used to whenever we have a problem, that old phrase, you know, have you tried turning it off and on again? And if anything goes wrong with this computer I'm on right now, it's a reboot to start. Just first thing you try. But that doesn't work for many systems. And as we go into this cloud native sort of way of doing things too, we treat servers as cattle instead of pets, where we're just like, okay, the server's acting up, then get rid of it, add a new VM instead. And that's great for DevOps. And it allows folks to move quickly. It allows us to not spend a lot of time diagnosing a certain class of issues. But there are systems that need to stay up. And having a load balancer just sending traffic between different servers, that doesn't always work. And in those situations, I love that Erlang can stay running for years at a time without having to worry about these kinds of issues. Just to say, like, I, I hope I never have to deal with like a system running for 20 years and then not rebooting because of speck of dust on the reading head. Like, that's not a thing I want to deal with. <laughs> whoever, whoever had to do that, like my, my deepest respect, seriously. It reminds me of another story. It's not really related to this, but there was a, a guy, I think it's Michael Maynard, Maynard, I don't know how you say his name. He he came to Hong Kong and he and he was and he was there to talk about I forgot what now. All I can remember is the story about how every day at like 2 a.m. or 4 a.m., the networking would just stop, right? So it was like a bunch, it was a big, it was a very large. Did we talk about this before? Because you're shaking your head like yes, maybe this I, is I, your... I know that story, but continue. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did you did you listen to this story before or did I tell the story before? I think I've heard it to somewhere else, but like yeah, okay. just go on. So every day the, the networking would stop at 4 a.m., right? And they spent like weeks, I think, trying to debug what what's going on, like around 4 a.m. That well, what it turns out for some reason is that when you got so it's a cashier, it's a big, super big chain. I think I kind of know which one it is, but I don't want to say because he's not allowed to say and he told us all this. Yeah. Anyways, and so obviously in the daytime, you're scanning customers and the cashiers and everything are working, right? Networking's going, there's traffic going on. But at night, there's no traffic, right? There's very little of anything. And so what happens is that they have this networking configuration where when there's no traffic and then all of a sudden there's traffic, it's like a, a way to block maybe malicious stuff. And so the firewall would just come up and it would just block everything. And so every day at 4 a.m., because what would happen is that every day at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., they'd be getting a phone call saying, get over here. We can't do anything. We can't bring up customers. People want to buy stuff. And that's, you know. It's a huge chain and these things are all networked. So like, could you imagine like trying to figure out like what's going on and you have to like, because when it's a firewall, right, you send a, a packet and it just gets dropped. Nothing comes back. So that's what was happening is that they couldn't even diagnose it because you wouldn't even get a ping or anything. So I, I, why the heck are we talking about this? I don't know. But anyways, uh, crazy to debug issues, right? I think is where it came from. I actually, uh, like I, I was thinking we were going to a different story somewhere because there's a similar story of like a person, like uh, this one server going down, like, every time around like 6 p.m. ish and they like also to spend weeks on trying to track it down and then at some point this guy sat, sat down in the server room with like a beer and like okay i'm gonna see what happens at 6 p.m and at 6 p.m like the cleaning person person that comes in and pl pulls out the socket like <laughs> plug from the socket 
plugs in like the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the downtime came from so like yeah so i'm not sure how we got here but like sometimes you have like really these issues and where things goes down things go down even in, in scenarios where you really would never have imagined before that this might be an issue down the road so yeah failure is built into our systems it's just the way it is so having a runtime which really accepts that and embraces that can make a lot of things easier there's quite a few companies that actually sorry, I was just gonna say there's quite a few companies that actually do that. Part of their process is they literally go to the server and start yanking stuff out as a development process, just for uh Elixir Erlang. Sorry, Eric, that just popped in mind. I wanted to say it before I, I forgot. Do you mind uh sorry, go back to what you're the, saying? The key, the key would be chaos engineering if anybody would want to wants to look it up. And maybe I'll post the link in the show notes. Oh, I was curious if you know <laughs> what the troubleshooting process for the uh speck of dust story was like, I wonder how they got to that root cause analysis. I mean, that must be fascinating how they tried to find their way out to that speck of dust. Imagine they had to like crack open the hard drive at some point. I love imagining the person standing in front of this machine that's 20 years old thinking, yeah, we can keep going. It's served us for 20 years. Let's just uh, reboot it. It'll, it'll continue. <laughs> that's a pretty significant amount of trust in a system. Well, there's so many, like, I remember working in a software vendor a couple of years ago, and I don't remember exactly the story, but I think there was like a VPN or something running off the Solaris system. And it was just a machine that just was sitting in the corner for decades. And they just, it just ran and they never restarted it. And then it was kind of like, what is this thing doing? And <laughs> kind of reminds me of that. It's like, sometimes you just run these systems and they just run and you just don't touch them. One of the first services I did for that company, actually, it like everything, it wasn't, Erlang or Elixir, it was just Python, but we used RabbitMQ to communicate everything. And the ops team basically started, basically chaos engineering for us. They started just shutting down processes and seeing if things were happening. And the queue flooded up and then they had to call me and to come fix it because they were like, well, it never aired up before. So we don't know, we didn't know it was still actually running. We thought it wasn't actually running at all. So that's kind of like, sometimes things run too well and then you don't get the recognition. I find that, you know, Maybe it's good to actually kind of throw a couple of bugs in there because people like it. When you save the day, they think you're an awesome engineer. When your stuff works and nothing breaks, then they don't even know you exist. It's like, nothing is working. Why are we paying you? Everything is working. Why are we paying you? Basically that, right? Yeah, no matter what you do, you're in trouble. Okay, <laughs> maybe back, back on track. AJ, I'm wondering, like, Based on what you have learned, and, and, and I'm sure there are things you, you discovered alongside the way of doing this course, is there anything you'd like to, to change? Or is there like where you say, okay, I can imagine like a, a follow-up course building on top of, of what we have here. So, so where does the road lead? Working through Elixir, the big picture, again, focused on both software folks and leaders as well. It was obvious to me that the Elixir, Elixir itself and the Erlang runtime have a lot of value. It may not be immediately obvious how to capture that value. And so I really wanted to follow up with some sort of architecture-related course to help you actually access all of the great things about the runtime, actually use OTP to its full potential to give you the great things that we promise that you can get out of it. And so I worked on a course called Architecting Elixir Applications with OTP. That seemed like a really important follow-up. From that, I realized that if you really want to get all the value from that architecture course, you need to understand testing a lot better than even I do today. 
And so I'm hoping that we can get a little more content on testing. There's a great new book out, Testing Elixir. The ideas of property-based testing as well, really important. I think if we can get more broad-based understanding of not just what they are and how to do them, but why they make a difference in the long run to your business, I think that's really important. Because if we can tie all of that knowledge and all of those capabilities back to business value, that's how we get Elixir to be adopted by more companies. It's kind of sad that Adi isn't here, right? Because if I remember correctly, uh, some of his colleagues have written testing Elixir. So he probably would have something to say. But yeah, well, here we are. Okay, yeah, thank, thanks. I can, can see, I can already see how, how that might be useful to folks out there. Like one maybe a little difficult question for you. Um, why should I, for example, choose Elixir the Big Picture compared to maybe some other courses out there? I think there is even there's a course from Bruce Tate also. I didn't quite find it while I was Googling, but there are of already like interactive courses to, to learn Elixir. So, I mean, I, can, I see the appeal of having this leadership-based thing, but as if I'm just, air quotes, a developer, why would I choose Elixir Big Picture over maybe some other courses out there? Or why should I maybe then go to other courses if it's the better choice? Yeah, so I'm going to be a little, do the opposite of what I probably should do here. You know, if you have a great course that you have access to, Take it and share it. That's the main thing. If you don't have access to Pluralsight, your company hasn't paid for it, you don't have an account, then obviously Elixir, the big picture, isn't going to do much for you. What I really wanted to do by even creating this course in the first place was not necessarily create the best piece of content ever because there's great content out there and I could never hold a candle to Bruce Tate or anything that he's created. But the folks who already have access to Pluralsight the folks who use Pluralsight as a way to decide whether a technology is something that they can train their people on, that's who I was really targeting. And I think there's other things we can do as a community to help those folks out. Because whether we realize it or not, folks use a very different heuristic to determine the legitimacy of a language than what we use as technologists. We try a language. We build a project in it. We see how it feels. We see how productive we are. And those are great ways to determine if it's something we want to build our next project with. But many companies don't necessarily care about those things. They're wondering, how quickly is this product going to get off the ground? How quickly are we going to get the return on our investment? How likely are we going to be able to hire for it? Things like that. And they use things like the presence of learning content on their platform of choice as part of that heuristic. They use things like a language's popularity on a language index or how many hits they get when they search for it on LinkedIn as heuristics for whether this is a good choice for them. Whether we agree with that or not, it does happen. And so there are things we can do. Putting content in new places always helps. Going on LinkedIn and doing things like endorsing one another for Elixir as a skill. It seems like such a, a small thing. And I know many technologists, including myself, really don't spend much time on LinkedIn. But that data is used in places. People do look at it to, to think about whether this is a, a good technology choice. So I think we can do more as a community there to help these companies see that it's a good choice for their next project. Basically reach outside of our bubble, right? Because I mean, of course, as technologists, we live inside our bubble. And maybe LinkedIn is not that part, big of a part of that. So yeah, I can, I can see where you're coming from. And I can see like how you identified this niche of like having the leaders and maybe producing content for, for, for these people. 
and experience of the mining so be great so yeah like that's some interesting thoughts there for sure so maybe i'll just go on linkedin next uh, and endorse some of my colleagues for their links knowledge <laughs> i recommend it i really do and other things that you can do too upvoting things on stack overflow if there's a stack overflow question related to elixir that helped you upvote the question and the answer and make sure that those any questions that you ask are properly tagged so we can track these things these are little bits of digital exhaust that companies collect in order to determine how popular a language really is. And unfortunately, I don't think Elixir is well represented in those things. I think our community is a lot bigger than our data makes us look. So if you have an opportunity, go for it. Like go upvote things, go endorse, things like that can really help. Yeah, I remember having discussions around this where people said, okay, ah, like Elixir is not that popular on like Stack Overflow, if you look, because a lot of what's happening in the community and especially questions and discussion happen on Elixir Forum. And like that forum is like super active. I mean, I, I look into it basically daily, but there's always something happening over there. So like these, these traditional platform like Stack Overflow is actually maybe not as much activity on there as uh, you might guess in terms of how many people are actually using elixir day to day what i really like to see also in the last um, stack overflow survey that elixir was the third highest paying language i think so like it was really or fifth highest paying language so that, that was nice to see that finally some some recognition of our of our language and our platform of choice in these more traditional air quotes sources of, of, of information yeah if you see a developer survey like the stack overflow developer survey please take it because people will use that data for expanding the community. Okay, Alan, Eric, do you have any more questions for AJ? Otherwise, yeah. Okay, otherwise I'll probably go to picks now. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. And so, Alan, do you want to start us off with picks this week? Uh, yeah, so I can say I definitely pick the YouTube video I sent earlier about the uh, Super Bowl. So how Erlang saved this company during the Super Bowl, that's a pretty good one. Also, the other one too. So I recently started picking up this book called Zero to Prod. It is a Rust book. Of course, you guys know I'm pretty much trying to get more and more into Rust. Well, actually, what I like about this book is it really takes you from beginning to like production with Rust. And the other thing, too, is they do things that I think most books don't teach you, which is actually how to build something really from scratch and not just like creating the services and everything, but also how to add in things like testing. Not a lot of books add in testing, but there's also a telemetry part, too, which is I never hear about telemetry in any other language except for Elixir. So when I heard that, I'm like, wow, this is really interesting because not a lot of books, you know, not a lot of people teach telemetry in programming languages. So I think this book is something that is pretty cool. And I just finally started reading it today. I'm pretty happy with it so far because I've really taken it from the beginning and kind of saying, okay, we want to build this thing. How do we build it? We need to have like a linter. What's a linter? A linter does this. We need to have like a CI server. Here's some setup, how you set up a CI server. 
really like from beginning to end and really like the professional route, right? Linters and having a CI. And like I said, telemetry eventually, those things I think are just not talked about in most books when they're teaching you like a language. So that's why I think this is a pretty interesting book for people who want to pick up Rust and like get the whole entire production experience. Nice. Eric, what would be your picks? One pick, which is the holiday book that I've been reading the last two weeks. It's completely off topic. It's called Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies and the Truth About Reality. And it's a hilarious read about a guy who started off as a punk rocker, then how somehow made it to Japan, working for a uh, company that is making monster movies where you have Tyrannosaurus Rex that is tearing down Tokyo and stuff like this. And he ends up becoming a Buddhist monk, getting to Zen Buddhism and meditation and a lot of the elements of Buddhism. And it's been <laughs> a hilarious read with all of the anecdotes that he shares. And it's been made me laugh out loud several times. But most crucially, it's been giving me some insights into Buddhism, which has been a bit, like, a bit of a niche interest of mine for a long time. I had this book on my bookshelf for several years now and so finally took the time to read it. And uh, it's been really an enjoyable experience. So hope someone else finds that book useful. Sounds interesting. Now I have two more books to add to my never-ending to-read list. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Okay, AJ, do you have any picks for us? Can can be anything. Like as you've seen, we, we have all kinds of picks this week. There's sure. no more books, right? No more books, please. Right. Can't add any, any to the list this week. So sure, I have two picks for you. First is more abstract, I guess. One of the places where you can run into trouble with Elixir and where it can be frustrating as a community is where Elixir combines with other languages, you know, the interop between things. So if you're one of those rare people who knows Elixir and Swift, for example. I'll drop a link to a project I've been working on to help make it easier to have an iOS app, for example, work directly with Absinthe. That's just one example of we need more projects that allow Elixir to interop with other languages, other things around technology. And second, I'll just throw out that I believe it's September 18th, we start a new season of the first tech challenge. This is a program for middle and high school students in robotics. They get a new challenge every year. They build robots to meet that challenge. They compete against one another. It's a really cool thing. So if you as a technologist are in a place where this challenge takes place, there are teams nearby you, I highly recommend go out, volunteer, mentor teams, help them learn how to program. This is something you can really do to help inspire the next generation of folks who are entering both programming and engineering. Then, then they show him how awesome Elixir can be, right? So we create our new next generation of Elixir developers. That's wow. right. <laughs> okay, I will make it short and sweet. I will pick a book, sorry, Alan, uh, but it's a very short read and I wouldn't be surprised if you have already read it. It's um, Erlang and Anger. It's actually a free ebook and it's I think it's below 100 pages and it talks about like, what can really go wrong when, when running software on the beam and like what people experience when running Erlang in anger. So when things break and how, how to be, how to basically deal with beam instance running, which might not behave as you expected and what the beam then gives you for tooling to deal with this kind of situation. So it's very interesting read if you're like interested in like operations and really want to, to see, okay, how, how can the beam be pushed to its limits and what can go wrong? And it, as Sarah said, it's a fairly short read. So not another 300 side book to add to your never-ending reading list. Okay, folks. Then unless you have anything else to add, no 
everybody is shaking their heads. So I wish you a great week and tune in next time when we have an episode of Felix Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.